If you've ever been to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., you've likely walked past this. Uh, This is the Hope Diamond. It weighs a whopping 45.52 carats. I I don't know what that means. It seems like it's a lot. So, um, but it was originally mined in India and the first record of it was from the year 1666. And when it was originally mined, it weighed 112 and three sixteenths carats. Again, I don't know what that means, but it seems pretty big. The history of it is, is pretty interesting. Um, it, it eventually was sold to the King of France. And then it was stolen in 1792. And over the next few years, it was cut down and made into the necklace that you now see on the screen. And the Hope family, which was a banking family from the United Kingdom, um, came into possession of it. And then in the early 1900s, after the, the family had sold it off, it made its way to America and was donated to the Smithsonian. Guys, I don't show this to you as a subtle reminder that Christmas is only 14 shopping days away. Um, But when you look at a diamond, you are given the ability to catch its splendor by the way that the light reflects off of it. This morning, as we look into the text of Scripture... We were able to see Christ much like we see the light reflecting off a diamond. The author of Hebrews in this in one and a half verses that we're going to look at this morning presents to us seven realities of who Christ is. And, and with each one, we're catching just a glimmer of that light reflecting off and and really, I, I pray, presenting to us. A wonderfully beautiful picture of who our Savior is. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, we, we talked about the fact when we introduced ourselves to the text that Hebrews was written so that its readers would know that Christ is sufficient. Now, I'd say if the author of Hebrews ended his letter after verse three, like he wrote verses one, two and three said, amen, sent it off. That would be enough. Because what we have just in these really a verse and a half is a wonderful reminder, an amazing description, a beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is. Last week, we we talked about the idea that Christ is the final word of God. That God had spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament. Whether it was Moses or, or Isaiah or Daniel, you know, we read about all these prophecies and the prophets that wrote warning and reminding Israel that God was doing a work and that it was all culminating with the gift of the Messiah that would come. That when Jesus appeared, it's as if God put the pen down and said, I am finished speaking. That everything that we need to hear from God is found through the person of Jesus Christ. God has spoken His final words through His Son. And these verses that we're going to look at this morning serve as a reminder of the total sufficiency of Jesus. 
And I believe that's important for us to, to take some time and unpack today, not just because it's Christmas and, and it's good to remember that we celebrate Christmas because of Christ. But I also think that there are times in our lives when we are tempted to think that Jesus isn't enough. And you might gasp inside at a statement like that. But if you, if you were to ask yourself how you live, what you are thinking in the midst of trials and temptations and uh, the persecutions that you may be facing, you know, the subtle things that, that happen in our world that, that are trying to erode away our faith. And then you face the calamities and troubles that you're going through whether they are outside pressures or whether they are news that is affecting you. Um, I would say that there would be times in your life where you live as if Jesus isn't enough. And it's because we forget. I know that there are times when I think that I have a better way of living than God has. That I think I can do better than Him. And maybe I ask him to help me in my plans. I want him to bless my efforts. And in, in that, I admit that Jesus totally is not sufficient. But coming to the text this morning, we, we are really just not even subtly reminded, kind of hit in the face reminded of the beauty of Jesus. And so this morning, I hope that we see as we read the text that the author takes a light and shines it on the sun and says, let me show you who he is so that you don't forget. And as a result, you will remain hopeful that he is more than enough for you. Maybe that bears repeating that Jesus is enough for you. You don't need anyone else. You don't need anything else. When the great theologian and pastor Charles Spurgeon preached this text over a hundred years ago, he gloriously announced, I have nothing to do tonight but preach Jesus Christ. And then from there, he went on to show that Jesus was Announced by the early Christians in Acts chapter 5, verse 42, when we read, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Then Philip went down to Samaria and he proclaimed that Christ was there. In Acts 8, 35, we read that when the Ethiopian eunuch climbed into his chariot, we read that he preached Jesus to him. Immediately after Paul was converted, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says that his desire was that the church in Corinth would know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That all I got today is Jesus. That all we have today is Jesus. That the text of Scripture announces to us the sufficiency that Jesus is enough. Amen. We don't need anyone else. 
And so the author, what he does for us in, in just a verse and a half is he presents seven realities of who Jesus is. Kind of like the different angles on that, that diamond that you turn in the light and the, the light captures and reflects it in different ways. We're, we're going to kind of turn the diamond a little bit and we're going to capture seven pictures of who Jesus is. And the first is what we read in the second half of verse 2. That Jesus is the heir of all things. So let me read these verses for you. I'm going to begin in verse 1 because it, it kind of all fits together in the thought unit. But we read, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So the first thing that the author says is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Now, this seems natural to us, right? Because Jesus is who in relation to God, the father, he's the son. And that it seems natural to us that the son would inherit what is the father's. But what's different in our understanding of the, of an inheritance is what do we know about the father? He never dies. There's not anything left to give after he dies because God never dies. And yet this son is receiving the full inheritance that he is due. There's a future sense to the completeness of this inheritance that in the future kingdom of Jesus, we read in Psalm 2.8 and just to Take a step back. If you're ever reading through the Psalms and you read the second Psalm, that's what is referred to as a messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm that points us towards who Jesus is. It's prophetic in its nature. And in Psalm 2, the, the Son, the Savior, is highlighted as a special, marked off person who is going to be the King of all creation. And in Psalm 2.8, we read, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That the earth and all that is in it belongs to Jesus. In fact, Paul writes in Colossians 1.16 that all things were created for him. That Jesus owns everything. That the, when you go home today, whether you think you own the land that you own or not, Jesus owns it. And if you were to get on an airplane and travel halfway around the world to visit a place that you've never been to before, Jesus owns it. That all of the earth and everything in it is his. And not just the things on the earth, everything in the universe is his and everything has a purpose and everything finds their identity in the heir of Jesus Christ. But more than that, 
There is also another inheritance that is supremely important to him. It's us. You and me, those who have trusted in him. All of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross are his inheritance. Ephesians 1.18 says this, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Church, I I pray that you know that in the world that you live in, that the Father made and, and that is given to the Son, that this world that you live in is important to God, but you are the most important in that creation, that through faith you belong to Him. And that in the eyes of Jesus, you are the greatest prize that he could ever have. You are his in the beloved. You are of more value than the rest of the universe. That if they were to mine all of the rare earth materials out of the earth and put some kind of value on it, It does not compare to the value that you hold in your father's eyes. Not only that. You're not just the inheritance of Christ. But you also share in his inheritance. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 17. And if you are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. With him. Jesus is the heir of all things. The second thing that the author of Hebrews says is that Jesus is the creator. Hebrews teaches us it is through him also he made the world. Now, this word world is better translated ages. And and that really shines a light on what the author is wanting us to know that this word reflects more to time, space, energy and matter. That Jesus isn't just the creator of something, but he's really the creator of everything. Jesus is the one who has created all things and is at work through the entirety of the universe, through All time, space, energy, and matter. Deceased Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking, and you may have known who he was, but he was a person that that did not believe in God and was antagonistic towards um, God being a proposition as a creator. But he who was referred to as one of the most brilliant theoretical physicists since Einstein, says in his best-selling work, A Brief History of Time, that our galaxy is just an average-sized spiral galaxy, the Milky Way. Like, we're just average, okay? But then he goes on and he says this, Compared to the other galaxies that we know of, We're just a swirl in a pastry roll that is over 100,000 light years across. It's about 600 trillion miles. That's how many 100,000 light years is. He goes on to say, we we now know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes. So 
just our galaxy is just one of some hundred thousand million. Like those are numbers that if I said that in school when I was in grade school, the teacher would be like, that's not a number. You made that up. But somehow it is. And, and, and so we're just uh, an average galaxy compared to the other galaxies that we know. And our average galaxy is 600 trillion miles wild, wide. And it's commonly held that the average distance between these 100,000 million galaxies, each being 600 trillion miles across, each one containing 100,000 million stars is 3 million light years. So if you've been able to pay attention and follow that, just understand it's a lot, right? On top of that, the work of Edwin Hubble has shown that there are red spectrum galaxies that are moving away from us. I don't know how they figured that out, but they they figured out that there are these red galaxies that are actually in motion moving away from our position. And that teaches us that the universe is continually getting bigger and bigger all of the time. And some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away. And it is racing away at 200 million miles an hour. Now, why do I say all of this? Because Jesus made it. All of it. And my mind has a hard time fathoming all of the grandness of those numbers and know that out of all of it, he placed this planet right where it needed to be so that we, the beloved, could find a home on it. Everything else is just window dressing for the Savior. All of the galaxies that are spinning and all of the places that they're headed, all of the stars, the hundreds of millions upon millions of stars that the Psalms say are each named by God are put in the exact place that Jesus wants them. Jesus is certainly the creator We were introduced to this thought last week in John 1 verse 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. 1 Corinthians 8 6 says, yet for us, there is one God, the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul says in Romans 11:36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And in Colossians 1:16 we read, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so let me ask you in light of the, the vastness of the material universe that you've just been brought in contact with and, and with the truth of scripture that reminds us that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything that Jesus is not able to do? No, absolutely not. And so we we come to a savior 
And we are reminded again that He's not only more than sufficient, but Jesus is more than able. And I don't know where you're at and I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know what is soon to come around the corner. But there is nothing that you will ever go through where Jesus is not more than able to meet your needs in that moment. He is more than able. Now that doesn't mean that he's going to always rescue you out of the pit. That doesn't mean that he's always going to to change the circumstances of the situation. And and you're going to walk away and say, whew, that was great. I mean, it was terrible then. It's great now. Everything is fixed. That doesn't mean that. But it does mean that Jesus is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. He is the creator. And as we read, uh, I'm skipping ahead in the order of the characteristics, but as we read in verse 3, Jesus is also the sustainer. We read in, in Hebrews 1 verse 3 that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things. That's everything that he made. That's everything by the word of his power. He's not like the Atlas statue, right? This is in Rockefeller Center, but there's other statues, right? He's not just like holding the world up and that's how he sustains everything. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is holding all things together, sustaining all things by the word of his power. Jesus actively holds creation together by his spoken word. And what that refers to is that there is a determined purpose for all that Jesus created. His word has tremendous purpose and power. If Jesus stopped speaking for a split second, everything would just fall apart. It'd be gone. It would cease to exist. All of the created universe and most importantly us are held together by his sovereign power. And everything is working towards his determined purpose. The heavens declare the glory of God. The universe shouts not only for the existence of God, but it celebrates its creator. Jesus is also the radiator, not like the radiator on your car. He's the radiator. Verse 3 says he is the radiance of his glory. He's the radiance of God's glory. Radiance is the correct translation. Some Bibles translate the word radiance as reflection, and I don't think that does a good job of describing what uh, Jesus is doing here. There's a huge difference between something that reflects and something that radiates. And all you need to do is go outside on a clear day. At night, we have the moon hanging in the sky. What does the moon do when you see the moon? It reflects the light from the sun. The moon has no light to give off. But the sun radiates the light because the sun is the source of light. 
So what does that mean for us when the author of Hebrews says he is the radiance of his glory, that Jesus is not just reflecting the glory of the Father, that Jesus is the source of glory. I think that helped me to understand when he and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, when they were up on the mountain in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration, when they saw Jesus gloriously transformed and Peter said, hey, let's build homes here. Let's build tents here. I don't want to go off this mountain. This is a great thing. Like I'm beginning to understand why Peter thought it was such a wonderful thing because they weren't just seeing the reflection of God's glory. They were seeing the glory of God itself in the person of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to stay. In the future, we will see the Lord in his full glory, either in heaven or when he returns to the earth. The earth and all that is in it will know the Lord has returned when he steps on the earth. He will be in full glory. We also read that Jesus is the representer. In verse 3, we read that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. Now, this phrase, exact representation, refers to the image on a coin, which corresponds to the image that was on the die that cast it. So, I don't know, some of you still might have coins in your pocket. It seems like we don't carry those things anymore, right? But if you were to pull out a coin and you were to look at the image on it, whether it was one of the presidents, depending on the size of the, of the coin, you would know that it's an exact representation of what? The die that cast it. Jesus said to Philip in John 14, verse 9, those who have seen me have seen the Father. Jesus is not just a close duplicate of God the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And even though God is spirit, and we worship Him in spirit and truth, and the, even though we can't see the Father, because of Jesus, we can see the Father Jesus let the world know exactly what the nature of God was like. And as the popular Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know, goes, and just as a side, you know, that, that, that's a terrible title for a song. Mary, did you know? She knew, right? Let's just, she knew. She knew wholeheartedly. But in the song, when it says, when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. That's exactly what's happening. Because he is the exact representation of God the Father. So these first five characteristics seem very large for us in the sense of Jesus as creator and sustainer and the full of glory and the representation of God. And like, you know, it, it seems so big picture. And these final two uh, representations that the author of Hebrews gives us, he kind of draws it into a one specific ministry of Jesus. And it's Jesus as high priest. And as we kind of turn the diamond right and catch the reflection that the author of Hebrews writing to a largely Hebrew audience would have understood the system of the Old Testament. And now the author of Hebrews says, I want you to consider how sufficient Jesus is as the high priest, not just of Israel, but of the beloved. And in verse six, or I mean, in verse three, we read the sixth characteristic that Jesus is the purifier 
we read, when he had made purifications of sins. Now, the writer of Hebrews has focused on the creative power of Jesus. He's now focusing on the redemptive power of Jesus. Jesus Christ did something that no other high priest could do. It's referenced here in one part of one verse in chapter 1, and then the author of Hebrews will spend many verses later on explaining how Jesus is the sufficient high priest. But all he says here is that when Jesus made purification of sins, like the reality is Jesus made purification for sins. He did something that none of the other priests could do. Jesus removed the stain of sin and provided the ultimate cleansing from sin. And Paul said this in Titus, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. That Jesus made purification. Church, I, I pray that you know the power of the blood of Christ, who as the great high priest became the offering that was provided in our place. Jesus made purification of sins, and then what did he do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And this refers to Jesus being roller, the person who is in authority. He sat down. And you can't miss, miss the connection with what the author says in Jesus making purification and then Jesus sitting down. They go together because in reality, in the Old Testament, the priests never sat down. They were always up. They were always making sacrifices. There was always something to offer because it was continual because our sins are many. And yet Jesus when he laid his life down on the cross for our sins, he once and for all paid for every sin that will ever be committed. And he shouted from the cross, it is finished. And it certainly was. Everything that needed to happen was accomplished. And after his resurrection and after his ascension, when he went to heaven, where did Jesus go? He went to the right hand of the Father and he sat down once and for all. Jesus sits at the place of highest honor. The right hand was a place reserved for those who hold honor and authority. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is in the place that he can only sit as God himself, who is the inheritor of the whole creation, who has made sufficient payment for all of our sin. And he sits at the right hand. Now, Jesus will stand up at one in one day and he will return to this earth and he will restore his kingdom and he will bring his children to himself. But right now, he sits in majesty on high. 
But there's a final reality for us to consider when we read that Jesus has sat down and has already made purification for our sins. It's this. There's nothing that you must do to add to the payment for your sins. See, when you read Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, and you come in contact with the Savior who made purification and then sat down, and you're reminded that it was totally sufficient, that there is nothing that we need to add, you need to remind yourself of the temptation that we sometimes feel to fall into this pattern of works righteousness or to repay God for the things that we do. And we need to understand that that is anathema to God. It means nothing to Him. It does nothing for us as we stand before Him. That Jesus has provided sufficiently forever everything that we need for the forgiveness of sins. Church, rest in the reality that Jesus paid it all for you. So as we close... I pray that you can see the splendor of Christ and behold his beauty. As a diamond that is being turned and seeing the light reflecting off of it, that you see the glory of Christ in fresh and new ways. Now, over 10 years ago, I showed a clip that contained the audio from a sermon by S.M. Lockridge. His S.M. stands for Shadrach Meshach. What a name, right? Um, He was a pastor in San Diego from 1953 until 1993, and he was known for giving a a well-known sermon entitled, That's My King. And as we consider the glory of Christ this Christmas and remind ourselves afresh of who he is, I I just want to take a minute together and, and remind ourselves of the totality of the sufficiency of Christ. And he does a great job of doing that. And so I'm going to show it on the screens now, and then we'll transition to the end of our sermon or service.